support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge. And Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. We're back after a week off, and we've got a good one today. On this episode, I'm talking to Thomas Ingenlatt, CEO of Polestar. That's a new car company with close family ties to Volvo. Polestar has two cars that you can go out and buy today. There's a $150,000 hybrid sports coupe called the Polestar 1, and the somewhat more reasonable $60,000 Polestar 2 sedan, which is fully electric and has been getting pretty good reviews. Now, Polestar is an interesting company. It's effectively a startup with tight ties to Volvo. Thomas himself is Volvo's chief design officer. So we talked a lot about what kind of company Polestar is. It's pretty small, and it has the ability to rethink a lot of things about how a car company is organized. But it can still fall back on the larger company if needed. We also talked a lot about what makes a car company a car company at a time when everything about cars seems up for grabs. In fact, Thomas told me he doesn't think of Polestar as an electric car company. Instead, he sees the brand as a set of core values about what a car is, with the technology underneath replaceable over time, maybe a long period of time. Eventually, Thomas told me, something else will take over from EVs. But back here on the ground, the transformation of cars into rolling electric computers is just getting started. So we also talked about some basic questions that just keep coming up. How is the charging network for Polestar EVs getting built up? Polestar and Volvo have chosen to run Google's Android for the entire infotainment system in the car. Why give that up to Google? And as cars slowly head towards self-driving, who should own the maps and navigation system? And how should we think about upgrading the computers in our cars over time? If you listened to my interview with Ford CEO Jim Farley a few weeks ago, these questions will seem familiar. But pay attention, because Thomas's answers are strikingly different. In fact, I'll leave on that note. Thomas is still a designer at heart, and I think you can hear that when you listen to this conversation. You'll see what I mean. Okay, Thomas Ingenlatt, CEO of Polestar. Here we go. Thomas Ingenlatt, you're the CEO of Polestar. Welcome to Decoder. Hi, nice to be here. There's a lot to talk about. Polestar is a, a new car company. There's actually quite a lot of new car companies lately. There's an EV revolution happening. But I want to start at the beginning. Polestar began as part of Volvo. It was spun out in 2017. You're still using some of Volvo's dealer network 
you have some Volvo design elements. Give me the brief story of where Polestar came from and what that relationship to Volvo is now. Well, the relationship to Volvo is very simply put into a picture. I mean, you know, it's a parent company. It was born there and uh, it, it raised its baby and it's growing up and becoming an adult. And we are on the progress of, you know, moving out, earning our own money and uh, becoming independent. It's it's always the easiest picture how to explain the, where we come from and where we want to be. We will always be some kind of family, but of course we will develop our own life. How big is Polestar? How many employees do you have? Size-wise, we are still not at all that big fat OEM, despite the fact that we have two <laughs> cars in production. We are still around 1,000 people. But of course, the trick here, and that is where the main business idea behind Polestar lies, we use elements that are existing in the family, like contract manufacturing, partly as well um, using technology platforms that we're using, where, of course, Hundreds and thousands of engineers and workers are working there, but they are not employed by Polestar. We do contract engineering, contract manufacturing, and have that type of asset light uh, approach to it. Is that a different approach than Volvo? One of the core questions I have for you is, the reason you spin out a company is to get rid of some of the institutional baggage that has developed over a long period of time. So is that we're trying to make a new kind of car company and reset, or is it we want to get better efficiency out of all the assets that Volvo has, but point them in a different market. Well, for us, Polestar, it's definitely the speed and the, the way how you can really build that company and make decisions on innovation, on how you, you know, set up your customer business. That, that you can really do in this small company much, much faster and em embrace it. And, you know, the day that you took the decision, you can implement it immediately. That, that works so much faster here. And you definitely have that advantage of a new company. Having said that, that at the same time, you use the efficiency of you know, the infrastructure of manufacturing and really bring that to a, to a higher use as that's a benefit for all of us. I mean, that's really where, of course, as much a, a win for us as it is for, for the big Volvo there. Polestar has two models out now. There's the Polestar 1. It's a hybrid sort of sports coupe. It's very expensive. It starts at $155,000. I just spec'd one out. I made it more expensive than that very quickly. The Polestar 2 is sort of the more mainstream model. It's uh, all electric. It's no hybrid. It's all electric. It's a hatchback. It starts at $61,000. Why start there at the, at the top of the market, at the very top of the market, when it seems like there's a lot of opportunity for more mainstream electric cars? Well, these two products exactly frame the brand. And yes, we put there the Polestar 1 as, a, as that highlight product, really showing the ambitious technology that we put in there. And of course, a high price tag. It's, it's a super luxurious car. It's a very low volume. At the same time, then a year later, we showed the, the foundation, kind of where, where's the entry ticket to the brand and where Polestar 2 came in as this uh, electric premium hatchback there. That, that's really where we framed what will be the, the playground of where we develop now the brand. The future portfolio that comes out now in the next over the next three years will fill the space in between. And um, that's pretty much to, to give, you know, the picture that we paint now is now framed by, by the right proportion. 
And okay, I understand that there's still an empty space in between, but you know, you have to start somewhere. And uh, <laughs> we decided to frame it first and then start painting rather than to start somewhere in the middle and you, you kind of diffuse to the ends and you don't know where the borders are. Why do the hybrid at all? I mean, I, if if you think the future is EVs, obviously hybrids are an interim step, but why start with a gas engineer cars at all? We had that discussion, of course, in the beginning. It is kind of like, why do you have a hybrid at all in your lineup? It was, at the end, like, come on, should we really be so dogmatic about it? It is a car that has the longest electric range of a hybrid, 100 20, 130 kilometers you can go. So for a lot of people, that car is actually a great entry into that electric arena. It helps people to actually feel comfortable about driving an electric car. People who might have never, ever thought about it before. They discover with that car, wow, actually the electric part is, is the real cool part about it. And it was always clear, it is just that limited three years production. It is that one fulfillment of a dream that we all had. It's a super beautiful GT and the technology is awesome. Hybrid is part of the electric journey. We will, of course, from now on have the electric lineup of the portfolio. And it, it will be that, that amazing car in the beginning. Yeah, a little bit of a unorthodox beginning. But then again, you know, it's the whole thing, the whole brand poster is not just a marketing exercise where you do a perfect plan from A to Z. It is, <laughs> it is a living thing. It has its, its, its history, how it all grew. And I think it has its charm to it that we actually don't just simply do everything about how, how textbook is, but give it a little bit more of air to breathe. And we at the end decided, come on, it is absolutely in line with, with what the, company philosophy is about. And that's why we felt at, at the end of the day, it, electric time will be a certain period of Polestar. Let's face in, in, in 50, in 60, 70 years, we will be still Polestar, but technology might have changed again. That's a really interesting way of framing it. This, you know, the startup company CEOs all tell me, we're an electric car company. The big company CEOs say, we're on our journey to being an electric car company. You're kind of not saying that. You're saying we're a car company and actually we have to adapt over time. Do you think of Polestar as an electric car company in the way that many, many new car companies explicitly frame themselves that way? I totally believe that what we create here over time is a brand. And that is the core value. We create something that I really hope that in 100 years we look back and we think, wow, what a brand we created. Imagine Porsche would have said, oh, we are a combustion combustion engine company. Then you bury yourself now. No, of course you reinvent yourself. And okay, combustion engine was the first, I don't know, 50, 60 years, and now they go into electrification. For me, that is, of course, a super important period. I mean, don't get me wrong, the electrification is the topic of the time. And I'm the first one to say, come on, we have to fully switch into that gear now. But we should not think that now till eternity that will be the drivetrain. It will be for quite a long time, but then again, what will happen in 50, 60 years? Maybe there will be something else on there. I never would connect a specific technology as a core of the brand. 
that is for me like you know I, I once had a, a had a boss in R and D and he said you know uh, we are a proper company we need a combustion engine <laughs> factory otherwise we are not a proper car company and already at that point in time I thought what you create is a brand and the brand has that that is the core value. Well, I, let me push you on that a little bit. I, I would say that for the longest time, maybe they didn't know it, but companies like Porsche, Honda, what have you, they were combustion engine companies. They were organized around this big, heavy thing that you had to put in front of the car, and they needed a gas tank, and they needed to vent the exhaust out, and they had to manage heat, all this stuff. And the entire apparatus of designing and selling and maintaining their product was organized around the drivetrain. And so even if they didn't know that they were combustion engine car companies, they had to build themselves around the the reality of the core piece of their product. When I talk to the, the CEOs of new car companies, they often say, oh, the old car companies won't be able to do this because they have 500 engineers who work on exhaust systems who will be resistant to change. And the opportunity with electric cars is to completely rethink a car from the ground up and to throw out all of the baggage. Where do you see that balance? Because you have what is a fairly unique viewpoint so far that I've heard. To a certain extent, of course, it, it is a problem to, to initiate now this change. And from what has been a company that has been so entirely busy with um, making a combustion engine work in a car, which actually is very difficult because it's quite a funny way of changing movement <laughs> from going up and down into rotation. So that, that has its problems. They solved it quite nicely, but of course, it involved <laughs> lots of people doing that. Both extremes to me are wrong. I mean, that, that combustion engine thing, yes, you really need a big, big effort to, to change a company from, from that kind of locomotion going into that direction into a different direction. That's, that's a hell of a task. Um, and that's, of course, what is our advantage, that we, we are not busy with that. We can fully concentrate on the new. Fine. It's, again, as well, not just simply making a computer on wheels or a, a mobile on wheels. It's still that kind of experience that you have to embrace. And that has a digital aspect. It has, as well, an emotional and physical aspect. The car is a moving object. It is still, for mankind, the amazing experience that you can actually accelerate yourself faster than your own feet can carry you. I mean, that is still an emotional experience. So that combination, embracing that it is about an emotional experience that you have in your car, and that includes the physical, the digital aspect, and the senses. That, I think, you have to bring into the experience of a brand. And to me, that is a much more holistic experience that is not connected just to the eternity of one technology. At the moment, I mean, how much we embrace and cherish the element of bringing your digital life that you enjoy so much into the car as well and make that seamless. I mean, that is one of the big things. It's as important as having an electric drivetrain is there that you actually have that ability to, to connect to your digital life in the car as much as you do it, you know, whilst you're cooking in the kitchen, whilst you're... <laughs> and there are monster tasks for, for car companies and that's still not solved 100%. That's where, where we're all busy with. But there's one big aspect is as well the customer relation which um, comes into the picture as well and building really a car company that is not always detached from the customer that much. 
and we experience that now fully. I mean, if having direct consumer business is such a massive experience, you really are then directly with the customer. They come with all the complaints <laughs> and with all the emotions to you. And that's good. I mean, it's great, but you have to cater for that. You have to be prepared for that. Where if till today, all the dealers out there doing that for you, now suddenly you're in the direct business there. So these are all amazing new things that we, as a, as a young company, trying to, to embrace and do. No? And that is definitely where all the OEMs that are out there still have to um, get onto that journey. You're a former designer. What you just said had a, a lot of design thinking in it, a lot of user-centric thinking in it. What parts of being the CEO have surprised you the most going in that transition from head of design at various places to now the CEO of Polestar? I'm tempted to say my life was say already... It. Get it out there. My, my life was already that bad that I couldn't get any worse. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, yes, of course, part, bit by bit, the creative part being in the design studio disappeared. And now I'm only, I don't know, four hours per week over there and be together with Max and Robin in the design studio that I definitely miss. Having said that, the daily work on making things, keep it together, happen, try to make things that are impossible, possible. Every day getting things over that hurdle of, ah, but it's, you know, can't we, can't we not do it like that because it's so, no, no. Every day try to push for that. It's the same that I did over the last 10 years in the design studio, trying to make designs happen where, you know, it's such an energy to, to, to bring it alive in real, in production. And it's still the same thing, but now on a bigger scale, it's now about a whole brand and about a whole company and to keep it together and really make everybody feel like, wow, this is our thing. It's not a place where you come and people provide you with something. No, it's it's your workplace. And, you know, if you don't pick up that spoon from the table when you left it there, there's not anybody coming. I mean, you know, feel that ownership <laughs> and treat the company like it's your own company. And I wish everybody in the design studio does it and everybody here and at Polestar does it. That is for me the, a big difference of people really feeling that much engaged and involved into it. It makes me happy when I see people do it that way and feel like it and have that same passion for it. And it drives me crazy when I see that people come to work who, who, who like it basically, but don't see that it has to come with yourself delivering on it as well. I ask every executive who comes on the show this question, you are the CEO of a small car company that is connected to a very big company. You're trying to launch a new brand. You're trying to launch new products. You have a lot of decisions to make. What is your decision-making framework? And, you know, I really uh, <laughs> I, I try to understand what you mean with framework. Can you explain it to me yeah, a sure. little more what you actually mean with that question? No one has ever pushed me on this. I am happy to explain what I mean by this question. I think that most leaders of large organizations have to make so many decisions with unknown outputs. There's not a right decision. And so every decision is about balancing a trade-off. The point of my question is to understand how leaders balance the trade-offs. So you can't know that you're going to be right if you're the leader of a large organization. You have to make a bet. And I think most people, after they make, after they do something a bunch of times, 
they develop a way of doing it, no matter what that thing is, whether you are carving a, a clay model for a car or if you are deciding how to operate your dealer network, right? These are just kind of repeated decisions or repeated tasks. And I, I think most people, even if they don't recognize it, develop a framework for doing the things they do. And I think one of the one of the things that gets taken for granted a lot is at some point there isn't a right choice. There's just a balance of priorities and interests and making that trade-off is very difficult. So that's what I'm always trying to get at is what is your instinctive way of balancing the trade-offs? I guess such a long period of my life has been connected to making decisions within the design frame where you have at the end of the day, it never could be a committee decision. It is such a personal decision about deciding on which is the right way to go, left or right, model A or B. What do you do? And as much as you try to back up your opinion with maybe um, some kind of facts and figures that you listen to, there's still as well a lot about uh, a gut feeling. And the gut feeling is not about taste. It's about really you judging about what the future will bring and out of the, the best picture that you can draw out of the information and your sense for what is going to happen and bringing that into, into your decision. Just simply dare to make that decision and that prediction of what will be the right thing. I'm not scared of that anymore because I actually noticed that, of course, you can rationalize a lot of things and explain. And I've trained that so much to actually make that connection of things that, that you predict for the future and what partly you feel about where the trend is going and how you can argue about it and how you can make a rationale out of it. Let's put that in practice. What risks have you taken in rethinking the car and what risks have you held back on? That started 10 years ago when we actually, for example, decided to go for a four-cylinder strategy with Volvo to go for only touchscreen when everybody was doubting that you could make a premium car company not having minimum a six-cylinder and that touchscreens, nah, yeah, with, a, <laughs> with a sticky fingers and stuff on it. That was one decision. The other thing, I mean, definitely embracing the Android Google thing and going for that. And when the rest of the world was saying, oh, how could you, how can you dare to, you know, let, let them into your demand? They will, you, they will all dominate it and stuff. Offering a car where you say, no, uh, yeah, it's a premium car, but do you need for a premium car to, to equip it with, with leather as standard? No, there is a new premium and you can offer to customers who pay lots of money for it new materials that are not necessarily a natural leather. When we did the Volvo XC40, for example, it was everybody thought, ah, come on, just do, you know, a, a little copy of the XC90, XC60. I said, no, we, we don't do just a little copy. We do something <laughs> new. We do some radical new design. When we did the Polestar 2 and we said, yes, that is how a modern sedan looks. It doesn't look like a traditional sedan. And that stance and that power that it has, it's great. And, and my God, how... There were not lots of people believing that the Polestar 2, you know, why didn't we do just another SUV as a first start? And I, I'm so happy about having our passionate customers who exactly feel how, how great that car looks and 
fence on the road. But I tell you, three, four years ago, there was a very little minority <laughs> of people in, in our management team who believed that that will be a great uh, success. So there are lots of decisions where you're really on your own at that point in time. And you cannot go to a clinic and just clinic it because that's so difficult to predict. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Thomas will tell me why Android provides an experience that Polestar couldn't build itself. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let's talk about that, that decision to use Android in the car. Volvo was early. Now it, it seems to be what everyone's doing. Stellantis, which makes Fiat and Jeep, they are using Android in the car in the center stack. Uh, Ford just announced it will be using Android in the future. What is the balance there between letting Google own what has become a primary user experience in the car and what you want to design? Well, it's a customer benefit. If we promise to have a voice recognition networks, if we promise to have a navigation that actually knows that new restaurant around the block that opened a week ago and they know already, they want to know the opening times when they put into the Navi. I mean, that is what we never can do on our own. That experience we can only do if we have a great partner with a great search engine behind it and everything. Do we give up that experience? No. I mean, people sitting in a poster don't think that that suddenly is populated by uh, something outlandish owned by Google. It is such a Polestar experience, nevertheless. It's a partnership, and that is where 
if you go then to Ford or whatever, wherever, it will be a brand experience there. That 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 is still possible. I mean, let's face it. On my on my Apple iPhone, I have Google Maps, and still, just because I use Google Maps, it's not that I suddenly say, "Oh, but this is not an iPhone anymore, but an Android phone." <laughs> so I think there we have to be a little bit more sophisticated how we discuss it. It's not like suddenly the whole product experience becomes a Google experience. Yeah, there's a part of it and I embrace what they do for our, our car and it's a great partnership. And I think there the expertise of both brands come together and create just a beautiful product. What's your data sharing agreement with Google like? How much data do they get to pull out of the car? No, yeah, that's absolutely like on the phone where the customer can actually totally switch the even within the individual apps he can decide on how much data he provides and how much he keeps for himself so that is where that works very much like in the uh, in any phone setting where you go in and do your privacy settings but the te the telematics that you collect about the cars how much of that do you share with google well it's very similar like i mean of course the 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 this is not like the whole software is the software that runs the car is of course a, an automotive software the google part is the entertainment part so okay. uh, that's where people have to understand it's not like the whole software of the car is is run by android i mean that is really the entertainment part where you go into the the, the app store the navigation and all of that is the google android part while of course the whole Safety relevant, drivetrain relevant, the battery management, all of that's um, the, the, the whole autonomous capabilities of the car, the safety, all that is uh, our software. So the reason I ask is actually about autonomy. Uh, as cars begin to drive themselves more and more, as there's more driver assistance features, things like maps become critically important to the operation of a car and telling the car where you want to go. And there's obviously a connection between your autonomous driving system and the user experience of telling the car in the center screen and then the map underneath that actually tells the car where it is and what might be coming up. And then the data that is collected to refine and improve self-driving. That's, that's a lot of layers that need to connect and it seems like Google sits right at the middle of it for you. So I'm curious how you see that relationship developing. Um, there's... Um there's clearly a big, big distinction between what is the entertainment system and okay, the navigation is of course sitting in there, but what we provide today with our autopilot, which of course has, when you, we, we very much make, make that difference that we don't call this an autonomous system. It is a support system where you still are in the loop, mm -hmm. but this is of course a, a software that is completely independent from from the Google software in the future when we develop in our next car coming this to a highway pilot, which of course then will reach as well uh, the autonomous qualities where you really can let go uh, at some point in time. That of course is again a system which is uh, together with the software company here in Gothenburg, uh, Sensiac, who is developing that and we have a um, Lumina uh, LiDAR then for that. So all of that is is on a, on a complete different page where we develop this technology. Do you think the auto industry should kind of 
give up on developing the infotainment stack? I mean, I watch every car review on YouTube. I'm addicted to them. And every car reviewer just sort of waves at the center of the car and says it has CarPlay and Android Auto. And then they just move on. And I, I'm very curious, like, is that the end of the road? Is there more innovation there yet to come? But I, I think this is far too, uh, became far too much of a big, big major question. I mean, imagine in the past, we were always buying our radio from, I don't know, Blaupunkt or whatever company that was. <laughs> I mean, it was never the car maker who made the radio. It was never a car maker who made a phone. I mean, we just simply bring this stuff into the car and... Um, I, I, I don't see it such a major thing. It definitely is not like suddenly the, this becomes uh, the major domain. I think there will be a, maybe I'm too naive. Maybe I'm, I'm such a naive guy. But I don't think that it is really this big devil that we invite onto our table and suddenly uh, we lost it all. That to me is one And of course, it's not as naive as saying, come on, we, we buy a seat from Recaro. I know that there is a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more to it. Of course, we have to be smart and clever how we do the contracts and how much the user experience is still a brand owned experience. And I think so far, my, my, my experience with Google is that they absolutely support that we have a brand own experience, even though we use a system uh, in our car. And there I'm so far over the five years that we're working now together on that have not made a negative experience where I would be now more scared than we were in the beginning, rather the opposite. One of the things that's different between, I don't know, a blah punch radio in the 90s or a Recaro seat in a car now, those things are pretty modular. When I didn't like the blah punch radio, in the old BMW I inherited from my mom. I just replaced it. I just took it out and put a different one in. You can't do that with a modern center stack. You can't say, I don't, as the user, I don't like this. Or I bought a $60,000 Polestar 2. It has been on the road for five years. The computer is falling behind. Do you see a future in which people can replace the computers in their cars, the way that you might get a new phone or you might get a new smartwatch? Uh, to replace the computer is a difficult thing. And in the past, it was already the same. I mean, to a certain degree, technology at some point will be, has aged. What is so great about the system today is that you actually can upgrade it and that you can actually download new software over the air. And that is indeed an amazing experience. And that makes cars that can't do that suddenly feel really old. That's true. But one thing that you can do, I mean, you, you, you actually can run different apps. And if you, um, that's, for example, one of the great things, you can go and use a, a better route planner as, a, as your navigation instead of Google Maps. You can, in the future, there will be uh, other navigation apps as well. So you can make your choices. And there are providers that come in from other corners that give you Uh, the alternative um, choice. I mean, you can listen to your music from Spotify. I mean, there, there, there are choices and there, it is an open system where different apps are running and uh, you can make your, your selection as a consumer. Yeah, but the hardware doesn't change. So five years hence. Well, I mean, let me ask you this threshold question. How long should a Polestar 2 last? 
designing a product for forever will be very, very difficult. I mean, that is where um, I saw some studies and it is sometimes really, really difficult to keep a system that open that you permanently would try to upgrade it. And you at some point realize, wow, it doesn't economically make sense anymore because you start rebuilding the whole thing. And at some point, the physical elements and the electric components, I mean, after a couple of decades, this is just not anymore up to date. Mm -hmm. Fine. So the capability of the car today to actually, through software update, be renewed and adapt is actually a big, big step to keep the electronics in a car in sync with the physical product. And the batteries actually last an incredible long time. The car is one of the long-lasting goods. I mean, you will replace your computer mm -hmm. and your telephone far more often than your car. So that this electronics and the, the software in the car became updatable over the air is a major step to actually make the car not feel old too early when the mechanics and everything are still working very well. So... For that reason, I think we actually made a major improvement. That nevertheless, at some point in time, in 30, 40 years, this car, after it having been a second and a third-hand car, might reach the border of where <laughs> this is still appropriate technology. Okay, fair enough, that we cannot stop. 40 years is a, a, a high estimate. That's much more than I was expecting. To be very reductive, if I have a five-year-old smartphone, I know it's time that the apps won't run on it, the processor is old, this battery might be decaying, it's time to get a new smartphone. If I have a five-year-old car, there's nothing to me that says it's time to get a new car. The car's probably still working just fine. But the software in it, the, the smartphone part of it, the center stack, is on the same pace as the computer industry. So now I, I'm driving a car that has a five-year-old smartphone in the center of it, and that part I can't replace. Is that, do you see that coming that you'll eventually be able to replace just the part of the car that needs to keep pace with the smartphone industry that it's built on? I believe in five years' time, this is still a damn great product and the software and stuff will, will be absolutely still appropriate. There might be a newer product at some point in time where you feel certain features and certain functionality is maybe more tempting for you. Fair enough. Um, Having said that, that doesn't mean that your car being six, seven years old suddenly feels uh, inappropriate. As I, I very much believe that that technology will keep quite a high value over time. You talked a lot about the design of the Pulsar 2 and rethinking it and making it look, look athletic. And when I look at cars, and again, I watch all the car videos on YouTube, the exterior design of cars can be timeless. And then you sit down in a car that's 10 or 15 years old and this screen in the middle is small and the graphics are bad. And you're like, this is dating the car more than the design trends of the moment. <laughs> and you're a designer. I'm wondering how you see that tension. Habanile, I don't think that that is totally true. Culture and, and time is changing. And the car that is five, six, seven year old will definitely, you, you will, you can tell that this time has passed into your exterior as well. <laughs> they might be still appealing. And that is what I love about the car industry, that they're actually not this throwaway kind of aesthetics and products. 
but nevertheless, you can, you can of course, tell. <laughs> so I think it's pretty much in, in, in sync. And that was actually one of the reasons why I choose to, when I was, you know, choosing that profession designer, I, I was actually not necessarily that car fanatic that I would, could only have imagined becoming a car designer. But what I loved about that industry was that you actually spend that much decent time to make a product really, really mature and great and that you would make it not age that quickly, that you actually cherish that it's quite a lot of money that it costs and it should last a long time. And I think that aspect we still value quite high here in the car industry. So I feel feel on pretty safe ground there. And that we rather have a have that attitude how you will build a house and how you invest into a house and that you respect that this is something where you put lots of resources and stuff in and that you try to make it really long-lasting. I think that's a really good aspect of the car industry. We're going to take one more quick break, but when we return, I'll talk to Thomas about the challenge of charging networks and what the road ahead looks like for Polestar. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. One of the big things that's changing in the car industry is our relationship to charging the electric car. I bring it up because it it feels like one of those things that if you buy a Polestar 2 now, your experience in driving and using and charging it today will be very different than it is five years from now. That infrastructure is building. Yeah. Regardless, whenever we cover any car that's not a <laughs> Tesla, our readers come to us and say, well, Tesla has a superior charging network. Why would we buy anything that isn't a Tesla? You talked about building Polestar as a brand, more than a car company. 
Tesla exists. It is a dominant brand. It's run by Elon Musk, who says whatever he wants on Twitter, whenever he wants. So there's a brand element to competing with Tesla. And then there's just a very tangible, people think their charging network is superior, and that's the reason to buy a Tesla. Tell me about charging first, and then tell me about competing with the brand. Well, once you drive an electric car, you realize that charging is for most days of the year not an issue at all. And for most people, it never will be because they just simply, they have it fully charged every morning in front of the door. And you actually have that advantage of never, ever having to go to a petrol station. That's awesome. Yes, if you do a trip to a destination that is, you know, that much further away, a town that you visit where you have to charge in between, there's actually in most regions in Europe, I can tell, and definitely with in, in America as well, you will find that place. It needs a bit more planning at the moment. You have to make sure that you, you checked it before. I acknowledge that. But it's definitely today possible to, to do that trip. There are situations in wintertime going to a faraway ski resort. Yes, I see that there will be situations where it's still a hustle and why not everybody is ready to drive electric cars and maybe if it's their only car that I totally acknowledge we try to help it but it will still take a couple of years till we have total convenience and for that time being Tesla definitely has invested a lot of money in their charging network but I nevertheless cannot see that that is the future because if each and every car company on the planet would do the same. We would have a parallel network of thousands of charging stations and it wouldn't work. So we have to altogether work on an open charging network so that we really make a meaningful investment into the future. And that's what we try to develop and support and um, just now really made a really good offer over summer for each and every our customer to, to use as well uh, here in Europe, Ionity chargers for a really, really attractive rate and stuff. And that's how we, how we reached already actually a, a quite good status. And I can see that that discussion over the next two, three years will totally disappear because petrol stations will have to switch to provide electric charging. And that is where naturally demand will, will create uh, the right infrastructure. That's, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an initial thing that we have to overcome. Have you talked to Tesla about opening up the supercharger network, about participating with them or having them participate with you? Well, there have been talks in the past, and I'm sure there will be talks in the future from, they sometimes say they will open it. And um, let's see if they at some point really um, will do it. Do you ever think about just wilding out on Twitter to compete with Elon as part of building the brand. <laughs> so, sorry, what did you say? Do you ever think of just going crazy on Twitter to compete with Elon and oh. build the Polestar brand the way that he builds the Tesla brand? <laughs> um, no, I don't think that that is my style. How do you think about competing with Tesla as a brand? Right, You talked about building Polestar as a brand. Tesla famously does no marketing. They're, they're a very different kind of company. You have to be authentic. And I mean, that is... You know, I mean, that's maybe his way of being authentic and fine. And we have to be our way authentic and we have to be as a brand as authentic as possible. And I think we should never, ever try to imitate somebody to see who who are we. Do our, let 
people participate on our story. And that is, I think, what we really followed the way the last years, that we make people understand what, why we're doing things, what we believe in, and try to share the, the joy and the passion about what we create. And um, try to make that better with the people giving us the feedback. That's our way. And we are not uh, um, a brand that, you know, would now put a specific person into uh, into the limelight for us. It's a different way of building it. And having said that, it's, it's still fairly individual and I think a colorful brand. I think that we were never shy of expressing an opinion. We went very bowled out and, you know, declared the end of the combustion age and said goodbye to that. We were very bold in declaring that, you know, it's uh, our way of going with Google Android. We have very clearly stated that we dislike the way of, you know, compensating for CO2 emissions, that we truly believe that the way to zero emission is something that we have to do without compensation and really make it happen over the next nine years that we have a zero emission car. That's where we made our points and uh, feel we built our brand around this um, beliefs. How much do you think you have to pay attention to the broader political and regulatory climate? So you talked about zero emissions just now. You have called carbon offsets a cop-out. You say you're just going to build a zero emissions car without buying the offsets. It looks like the Biden administration is going to approve an infrastructure plan that doesn't have as much money in it for EV charging as people had initially hoped. Is that stuff you're tracking and responding to? Is that stuff you're you think that the broader industry will have to react to? Or are you kind of focused on we're making the product and things will fall into place? I think we, of course, have to take part in the discourse. We cannot shy away from that. I mean, we are not politicians. That's their job. But definitely us as a company and industry, we have to have our opinion and make sure we we have our voice in it. And that's where we participate in the discourse where we express our opinion and uh, definitely try to push and, and say, come on, guys, um, we cannot always save, play safe. We have to have a position. For example, when we, when we made our life cycle assessment of the Pulsar 2 public, I mean, of course, that was a step where we knew that people will abuse these arguments against us and where you say, yeah, come on, we have to survive that. It's not a short-term thing. We have to, we have to take that fight that that discussion and uh, it might not be always be sunshine um, but yeah but we, we cannot shy away from that no it's definitely needed and we always said you know the car industry has to face reality and we have to be for our customers clear in in our opinion and uh, transparent about it i think that is what people definitely expect from a modern brand that you don't put your head into the sand and for and and just you know try to try to be um, as smooth with everything. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned before in previous interviews that you didn't have any major consumer impact or cancellations through the pandemic, which is great. But one of the big issues coming out of the pandemic is the chip shortage, which is hitting the auto industry particularly hard. How has that affected Polestar? Yeah, well, so far, uh, so good, but it's definitely uh, an issue and it is 
a week by week review of where we are. Do we have to piece together for the production? It's definitely not predictable over the course of the next weeks and months how much the effect will be or not. This is definitely where the whole industry is an incredible difficulty in in planning. The planning is became so short, short period where you can do your planning that it is absolutely um, difficult to have any prediction how it will play out over the course of the next half year. So far, it was um, we we managed together with Volvo to get. Uh, halfway decent through it, but definitely we have as much as everybody else in the industry to really monitor it week after week how we keep the production together. Has that affected your plans for the Polestar 3, which I think last I checked was late 2021 was the date? Are you still on track for the Polestar 3? Yeah, we are on track with Polestar 3. That has not affected the plans for that car, no. And the, that's your SUV, yeah? Yeah, the Posa 3 will be our first SUV in the car line and using that new electric platform that uh, will be out then first with this car and be really awesome car. I mean, that I'm so much looking forward to for lots of reasons. We said it already with the Posta Priest at this show car that we said, look, this is actually, you know, the design statement, the direction where we are going and the Posta 3 will be full-fledged and this great uh, postal language and it will be of course not that standard SUV like you know it today I mean we really believe that the SUV has to change a bit when it comes to electric age you know you cannot be that high and upright in in the air and at the same time you know just making that kind of coupe SUV is as well not our <laughs> style so it will be I think a real really nice Cool design statement and have, uh, I mean, it's a almost five meter car, so it's a, it's a real um, for us Europeans a big SUV. I know in, in, the, <laughs> in the in the US you wouldn't call it big yet, but uh, it has a, a a really good size as well. <laughs> All right, I want to end here. You're a car designer. What is going on with the front end of cars? You're designing an SUV. Are you going to put a giant grill on it or those? huge BMW nostrils. What is happening? Can you stop it? Yeah, well, we, we will not um, go into that. I mean, the, the issue is, of course, a car needs a face. Yeah? You have to recognize the face, but you cannot just simply continue making this big open air intake as a fake air intake um, if you don't need But do you go to the bar with the designers at BMW and ask them, like, why are you doing this? Do you tell your designers not to do that? And they they will come up with lots of reasons why that is good for them. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small community, so I'm wondering if you have insight. But we will use the smart zone, and that is what we showed. We will, um, that, that you can see on the poster precept. We said, come on, there are the sensors and cameras and radars, and we kind of nicely collect them under that transparent shield. And that will be, instead of an air intake, we will have a smart zone, and it looks super cool and electric and high tech. So yeah, you, have to, you have to go along. And I mean, instead of just having no face, I mean, of course, you have to create a modern face that gives the new technology a meaning. So we collected all of that nicely in what we call the smart zone. 
Do you think that car design will get more radical as we get away from the expectations around what gas cars look like and we go towards electric cars? It was always a challenge to the designers to actually dare to to not just simply continue on a path that you experienced was successful in the past. I mean, that is, you know, always had been the the challenge that you that you have to dare to do that next step. And and yes, there is no guarantee for success, but you cannot just simply recook the old recipe. And especially in times when you have the great opportunity of new technology coming, that's always the driver of new aesthetics. So, of course, you have to embrace it and really dare to to take it. But at the same time, do it superficial and just create a fancy new look to look different. It has to be rooted in, in the technology and the needs for it and how you interpret it. It has to, it needs a really thorough intellectual process of working it into something meaningful. So whatever superficial, you know, styling come, it, it will never work in the long run. You really have to do the decent job on and do your homework and really try to make to make sense out of the whole thing. That's great. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for being on Decoder. I really appreciate the time. Well, that's a, a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks again to Thomas Ingenlatt for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like it, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino, and edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.